And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. Well, I've got a lot of serious subjects today, but I would like to start with something that is lighter, highly educational, and something that I recommend to every one of you, not necessarily for yourself, but if not for you, for someone in the family that is in need of more education about the basics, the getting started process of being a successful investor. I had a conversation this week with Patrick Geddes. Patrick was kind enough to send me the, uh, the link to his new book. And, and, and this book, by the way, Transparent Investing, is just terrific. It, it addresses not only the basics uh, of investing about stocks versus bonds and all of those things that we're uh, well briefed on, but he does get a lot into the psychological aspects of investing and, and, and how to build a tax-efficient portfolio and do it in a worry-free way. He is well-experienced. He's, he's an academic-like person uh, in terms of his background, all about the numbers. And so here's what we get to do. Uh, we sent out an email in the hopes of getting to as many as we could, but some of you may not opened it. But what that special email was about is access to a free copy of his new book, the 25th, the 26th, and the 27th of January. So there is still time. And, uh, and he also asks something that uh, uh, I, I, I should have been maybe more forceful about. Many of you were kind enough to leave a, uh, a review at uh, Amazon. And what he asks those uh, that find the book to be helpful and in fact, he says, give him an honest review. If you didn't find it helpful, say why. That's fine. But if you did, that would be helpful to him. And by the way, he is on the same track as we are. He is working for nothing, trying to get people to take over their investments and do better over a lifetime. He is going to be a great partner I have told you I'm working on a series of about 20 uh, videos, and uh, I'm, I'm on them right now. We're not recording yet. We'll do that at the end of February, but I'm putting together the outline, and I got a chance to see a couple of his videos. His are fun. His are, are so interesting, and I think they will appeal to young people. Mine are not going to be that interesting in terms of the bells and whistles, but it will support, I think, in, uh, in a good way, the information that uh, Patrick is giving in a much more entertaining way. So I'm excited to have him as a competitor slash friend in this industry. And please, follow up, get a free copy of his book, that link is in the notes uh, to this, uh, this podcast. And I almost forgot to mention, as it turned out, as I was putting together my notes to do this, Tim Ranzetta at Next Generation Personal Finance 
one an, another of the truth tellers and heroes of mine uh, in the industry. He did an interview of uh, Patrick. So uh, I would encourage you to listen to that interview as well because uh, there's a lot of good information in there about him. Keeping in mind, at the end of the day, it's always about who we trust. And you'll find out, I think, why he is worth trusting. I've got a lot of other important subjects for this podcast. And I didn't know whether to take the one that probably people are most interested in and put it here at the first or make it later. I've decided uh, to be fair for people who just want to hear about the coming stock market crash, that we do it now. And the reason I call it the coming stock market crash is because there are so many articles and links uh, to to podcasts, interviews, all sorts of things that imply there is a crash coming. Well, of course, this always makes more sense when the market is doing what these people who are yelling at the rooftops there on the rooftops, from the rooftops, uh, about the crash that is coming. Of course, nobody knows if a crash is coming. And what is a crash? I suspect we know, for example, a correction is from 10 to 20% decline. Now, a lot of areas are down more than that. Uh, I was talk later about the meme stocks and in, in so-called investments uh, in a few minutes. But if you, if you consider that a, a correction of less than 10%, uh, or 10% and more, is very common. Let's say, on average, not quite one a year historically, sometimes two or three in a year. So the averages don't always really protect us from having a series of those happen fairly quickly. But then we look at the 20%, which is the measure of the start of the bear market, and we find out that those come often. Now, is a 20% decline a crash. I, I, I guess if I had to define a crash, uh, I would look, for example, back to the Depression where you lost 80% of the value of the S&P 500 or actually over 90% of the small cap index. Uh, that was a huge decline there. But, but in modern times, I guess that uh, a 50% decline because uh, those happen. And having talked to a lot of investors, I think a 50% decline might feel like a crash. Whether it is a crash or not, I don't know. But there are a lot of reasons why people are, are, are believing there is going to be this huge decline. Now, there's one number that does stick out. And you don't see this many places. Uh, I do not have an exclusive to this information. But it is an interesting and important that when we look back to the peak of the dot-com stock bubble in March of 2000, the U.S. stock market was worth 1.4 times the size of the U.S. economy at the end 
of 2021, the U.S. stock market was worth over twice that, $53.4 trillion. And, uh, and so you could easily conclude, hey, we're, we're in a bubble. But those kinds of things are, are tricky because we, by that definition, you could say we've been in a bubble for some time. But they make a list. There are lots of lists uh, about the reasons the market could go down. In fact, I'll be happy to include a link to this quick list. They talk about it more than I will. But here's the list of 10 events that could trigger a stock market crash in 2022. One is no more free money. The government's not going to support uh, the ability to have a lot of extra money in the system as they have uh, during the, the response to the COVID, uh, uh, the pandemic. We have the, the, the COVID-22. We have inflation. Uh, does it start to look permanent rather than just uh, temporary? We have interest rates going up. We have the possibility that po politicians could do any number of unusual and detrimental things. That would not be a first in our history. We have to worry about China uh, and or Russia. And then, remember, there are a lot of people who believe that cryptocurrencies are part of a Ponzi scheme. And just as those that believe in cryptocurrencies are, are, are for real, the people who believe it's a Ponzi scheme are for real. And if that happens, that it is determined that uh, the, the emperor has no clothes, uh, th that could. It's a $3 trillion Ponzi scheme, if it is a Ponzi scheme. And uh, if it, in fact, was to crash, uh, that could have a huge impact uh, on, on the investment uh, uh, environment. Of course, it's an interesting aspect of crypto. I have not met many people who are putting money into cryptocurrencies with the idea of using that as an emergency. Like, like I've over the years met people who keep five or ten percent in gold just in case of the failure of the system. What most people seem to be focused on is I'm going to buy cryptocurrency at X and sell it at X plus. And when I sell it, I'm converting it into dollars. Well, see, at the same time, what you have is the real dark money. They, they do not want to be in cryptocurrency. They want people to take them out, convert it to something that is in many ways easier to, uh, to use. And, of course, now we have the risk that the U.S. government and other governments are going to start uh, requiring accountability in order to track the gains that should, at least by tax law, uh, be uh, taxed. And, and so uh, it is likely that cryptocurrency has some interesting hurdles to get over. I think everybody would agree that it wouldn't shock us if we had some sort of a cyber attack that could cause a negative reaction in the market. And 
extreme weather events, or I should say further extreme weather events that make people uh, more and more uncomfortable with the, uh, with, with the impact of climate change. So there, yes, there are all these reasons the market could go down, but I really am more comfortable thinking about that on the basis that there is always a list of reasons the market could go down. There is always a reason that securities that are not built with any kind of a guarantee, but that the people who run these public uh, corporations are doing their best to make them profitable, to make them grow, to make them sell for a higher price-to-earnings ratio. But there is no reason that that ratio couldn't change. One reason, by the way, is higher interest rates would have a tendency to bring the high P.E. ratios down back in the in the uh, 70s the pe ratios got down to 6 and 7 times earnings for a lot of good companies so that does happen from time to time but what i've included in the notes is a link to an article by the folks over at a commonwealth of uh, common sense or a wealth of common sense uh, and that's ben carlson i absolutely love his work I get up every morning, I look at what Tim Ranzetta has turned out, I look at what Seth Godin has turned out, I look at, uh, at, at what uh, Ben Carlson has produced, and I open up and read almost every white coat investor uh, uh, release that comes out in the morning. So when I get up between 3 and 4 in the morning, i got lots to do, but when I looked at Ben's last uh, uh, online piece, he shows a wonderful list of all of the corrections uh, in uh, blue and the bear markets in red. Uh, And he doesn't call anything particularly a crash, but it is pretty easy to see that it would be, uh, it'd be obvious that the big hits were back in 1973, a 48% decline. Uh, 19, uh, I'm sorry, 2000, a 49% decline. Uh, 2007, a 57% decline. And these are on the S&P 500. And as many of you know, the NASDAQ hit a, an 80% uh, decline uh, in that uh, 2000, 2002 bear market. So I think if you want to get a sense of the way it really is, and when I say the way it really is, I don't have any piece of evidence that would say that the kind of losses that we've had in my lifetime, there's no reason they shouldn't happen again. On the other hand, I'd like to believe that the kind of returns on the upside that we've had uh, are going to be experienced in the future. Now, I know we've talked a lot about how expected returns over the coming five or ten years are not expected to be very high. But uh, typically for most of us, not including myself, I don't have 20 or 40 years, but most of you of you do, and, and we'll have a chance to hopefully to participate in many bull market runs. And, and of course, then you have these 
these kind of intermediate declines, like what happened in 87 when we had a 33.5% uh, decline, or 2020, a 33.9% decline, and six, 1968 when I was in the business, down 36.1%. So there are lots of those kind of intermediate crashes and then you get down to things that look more like corrections. And when you look at the page, what you're going to see is there are a whole lot of declines of 10 to 2 to 20%. So is there a crash coming? Well, why would anybody out there be making a big deal about saying that, it, that there's going to be a huge collapse? I mean, I'm talking about uh, some of these claims are that uh, it's going to be, here's the one from Harry Dent, and we've talked about Harry Dent before. Uh, he's done, he's been wrong big time, many times, but his latest claim is the biggest stock market crash of our lifetime will hit in 2022. I'm sure that means you need his help. Uh, I would actually personally believe you don't need his help, and uh, and then you're not relying on his recommendations to figure out what to do with your money. I am, and this is my second topic, I guess third topic of the day, uh, it is an, an outrage. I used to do, when I had a radio show with Tom Cock and Don McDonald, we would do uh, an outrage of the week. I got to do the outrage. That was great fun for me. And I tried to, to, to sound as outraged and upset as I possibly could because in most cases they were things, honestly, that were just had terrible outcomes potentially for people. And I saw uh, in one of uh, a couple days ago, Tim Ranzetta, Next Generation, he was asking a question for the teachers, one that they might uh, share with their students about what kind of percentage uh, of the Gen Z, and of course, Gen Z is the 18 to 24, so high school kids might be more interested in that than the baby boomers and what they're doing. But 73% of the Gen Z investors uh, show up as, 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 as having said that they are in stocks. Now, they didn't break this out how much in stocks and how much of your stocks are, are individual issues and how, how much would be in mutual funds. So you kind of have to read through these numbers and, and, and kind of figure out what that's likely to be. But, but 35% of these people have money in mutual funds. But only 22% are using index funds, which means that these people, most of them that are in securities, either believe in individual stocks or mutual funds that have stocks that are actively managed. Now, what did they miss in their education? They must have missed all of the legitimate studies that show that actively managed securities, mutual funds, are likely to have a lower return not a higher return than index funds. And I was surprised to find out that so few of them have ETFs. 
And ETFs have a lot of advantages uh, for investors, including very low costs, access to index funds, and the ability to invest with just a few dollars. What was a little uncomfortable for me is that 30% of, the, of these people have money in bonds. Well, I don't know if we're talking about long-term money or short-term money, so I can't be totally critical of this, but I can say that one of the things that is long-term guaranteed to slow your rate of growth is putting on the brakes, and bonds are the brakes, and stocks are the gas. So if this is long-term money, I would love to talk to those people who are putting their long-term money into bonds, and I'm talking about people who are 18 to 24 years old. And, and, and it's possible not a one of them is thinking about the long term. They're just thinking about what they're going to get over the next year, which comes to my real outrage. And I've read this before. I've read that the Gen Z and millennials actually believe that cryptocurrencies are less risky than the S&P 500, an index fund. Now, I know there's got to be somebody out there that maybe believes that, who, who, who knows what has recently happened to cryptocurrency prices, and if you're going to conclude that they are less risky than the S&P 500, you know, it's a question of what planet you're coming from, because... It's pretty obvious that uh, cryptocurrencies are are uh, uh, much much more um, uh, much more volatile, and as long as I'm on cryptocurrencies, I got to reach down in my stack here and and pull out something about cryptocurrencies because I I I, I do want to share a couple of comments. Uh, I got a, 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 an email, a very short email, from somebody who knows intimately how I feel about cryptocurrency uh, and, uh, and how I would like to protect young people. And some people say, ah, don't protect them. Just let them make the mistake. They'll figure, out, they'll figure it out when they're 40 years old, and they'll just miss 20 years of good investing opportunity. But my friend writes, I am disgusted by Kiplinger's pushing crypto as an investment opportunity. I used to think of them as responsible analysts. Well, I certainly understand how my friend feels because I do find that Kiplinger's is one of the more responsible groups. But the reality is, like it or not, there are a lot of people who are either in cryptocurrencies, want to get into it, and if you don't write articles about it, and if you, in fact, if you don't support it, uh, and even though I am sure the editors at Kiplinger's, I know some, at least I did in the past, and these were people who know the difference between an investment and a speculation. But these days, there's a, a lot of pressure to look like the crazy things that people do. And it was just the same in the late 90s. 
Money Magazine was doing the same thing. They were painting a picture that was going to push people into technology because technology had been so hot. And when something is hot or crooked, people want to know about it. So it is a huge question. I still, I want to spend a minute because I thought about my friend's email. Am I being unfair? Is he being unfair to Kiplingers? Well, here's the way I think about it. Um, if I'm going to put a price, a value on something so that I can make uh, some sort of a, a come to a conclusion that if you put money into this investment, here are the reasons it should be worth more money in the future. And I would want to know, what is the price to the book value? What is the price to earnings ratio? What is the expected long-term growth of the earnings? You know, that's what people have paid money and bid things up for, and not for something that's just liquid. I mean, a treasury bill is liquid. A money market fund is liquid. But people don't push the price up uh, for, for, because there's, there is no value to it except for the, inter, the immediate guarantee that if you put, put a buck in, you get a buck out. And even then, with money market funds, they don't actually guarantee it like they do with a U.S. government treasury bill. But what can we expect? How can we evaluate and, and say to somebody, the future value should be higher because blank? And if blank is because people are willing to push the price up because they think it's going to go up, there is not one analyst that I know. Now, speculators galore. There are lots of speculators who believe in the bigger fool concept. That you're not, you may be a fool to put money into something now, but as long as you can find a bigger fool to sell it to, you're okay. So, bottom line is, I still struggle. I struggle with the idea of telling somebody that a cryptocurrency is a good place to put money for the long term. And let me, in a sense, go forward a couple of comments uh, that I have arranged to make. I, I want to talk about a young fellow that I know that put his first investment ever into Dogecoin. It was selling for over 60 cents a piece. Uh, now, it's, it's, it's what they call a meme. And, and, and a meme, by the way, it's interesting to know that people actually consider the Dogecoin to be a joke. It wasn't a serious product. It was a, a, a meme coin that has to do with, with more social things than economic things that was named after a popular dog on the Internet. But people manipulated that, that meme coin, and it went up to, I don't know what the high was, whether it was 80 cents, but my, my friend got in, young fellow I know, lower than 80 cents. I think, as I said, he paid about 70. I just talked to him recently. He got out. I think he got out around 20. And I said, well, I'm glad you came to 
to your senses. Now you have a tax loss that you can take, uh, which he didn't know about. But then he also didn't know that he didn't have to take that money and buy stock. He thought he was obligated to put money into something that at, at, at Robin Hood where he bought this. And, uh, and he could have put it into an ETF. In fact, he could have read my book. I sent him a copy of We're Talking Millions, 12 Simple Ways to Supercharge Your Retirement. I told him what he should do. And just by chance, when I was telling him initially, it, it was at a time before the small cap value funds took off. So he could have had this amazing first experience in a small cap value ETF and maybe built up some, uh, some, some, the rhythm of the investment and the hope of the investment will be successful in the long term. But what did he do with the proceeds from his Dogecoin? He put it into Ford. And I asked him, why Ford? And here's what young people have to understand. His reason is perfect. It is, it is ex exactly the way that most young people think about investing. Ford has a great story. What part of the Ford story does he like? Oh, he likes that they're in the electro electronic car electrical car business. Okay, that's great. But you see, to be a good long-term investor, if the way you do is you jump from one story, oh, by the way, if I make, I made a point to him, everybody knows that story. He had no leg up on anybody. So the price of Ford that he paid takes into consideration all of the confidence that people have in how Ford is going to do in the electrical car business. So... There you go. I hope. He promised me, promises me, by the way, that he's going to go do small cap value next. We shall see. Anyway, okay, let me go on to the next topic. I love this topic because I had a newsletter at one time, and we helped a lot of people with that newsletter. Uh, and... Uh, and, and, and doing what we do online replaced what we did with the newsletter, trying to give people uh, advice, free advice. But the money in the newsletter business can be really, really big. These uh, people who know how to sell a newsletter can make tens of millions of dollars. And I have had several uh, emails, questions, about The Motley Fool. And the reason I think it's coming is because Motley Fool has spent a ton of money advertising on big events on TV. I think even in, this, in the football games that you can pick up a Motley Fool uh, uh, advertisement. Now, what do they claim? Well, they claim something that a mutual fund would rarely be able to claim, particularly in the way they claim it, because they do talk about their recommended portfolio uh, over the last 20 years. If I remember, 
made four times what the S&P 500 made. Now, you can tell me if I'm wrong on that, but that's, that's my memory. And that's a pretty big deal. Um, and they talk about the newsletter where you can get that. What they don't talk about is the performance of all the other work that they do. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, that turns out to be pretty important because uh, setting up a portfolio to sell through a newsletter is really cheap to do. You don't have to do filings with the SEC. You don't have to find people who are going to sell it. You don't have to find a, a, a trust bank or a custodian or all sorts of things. And you don't even have to have anybody particularly bright uh, to recommend whatever's in the portfolio. Uh, when I say that, I'm not being critical of the people that Motley Fool have. I'm just saying that they're not looked on the same legitimate way that mutual funds are. So what would be the legitimate way to do it? Well, if they really wanted people to know how they have done, then they could, they could show you that. But in order to do that, somebody independent, in other words, when you look at the Morningstar returns, um, they are not being audited by the SEC, but I will tell you the mutual funds that report those returns have to jump through a lot of hoops, and if they are found falsifying, falsifying the returns, then they could get in hot trouble and literally be fined out of business. It's a, it's a highly con uh, controlled industry. But in... The mute, in the newsletter industry, there is one source that I know of that is superior to all others, and that is the Holbert Financial Digest. And you may have another one that does what Mark Holbert uh, does, uh, but this is my go-to guy. And at Mark, Mark uh, I'm sorry, the HolbertFinancialDigest.com, you can see uh, how, how newsletters have done. Uh, by the way, I, I think I threw that the. It's Holbert. Go, go to HolbertRatings.com. Holbert, H-U-L-B-E-R-T, Ratings.com. We will have a link in our, uh, the narrative about this podcast. There you can see not only the good times that newsletters have, but the bad times that they have. Now, understand that it's a piece of cake to take a newsletter portfolio offline. You just stop producing any recommendations for that newsletter portfolio and refer people to another one. And so the minute you have something that's El Stinko, you can just get rid of it. Now, it's interesting because many of the newsletters do continue to show those portfolios that have not done well. That's a choice any newsletter writer has. But when you have many, many portfolios, uh, it's just like if you have many, many mutual funds. 
there are probably some that are going to do better than others, and yet the people who underperformed, if you sat down and talked with them and you heard how they picked the stocks that they pick, they would sound just as intelligent approximately as the people who picked the winners. Of course, we all conclude or tend to conclude that the one with the highest track record is the smartest one of of all, the academics actually conclude that most of that is just a random event. But here's the deal. For $3,000 a year, Hulbert will continue to track newsletters. He didn't always charge to do it. What he used to do is he used to charge for the newsletter and then he would subscribe to the newsletters and people would get his ratings on hundreds of portfolios from all of these newsletters because the newsletters didn't have to do anything but send him a newsletter and give him the same information that this other subscribers were getting and Hulbert actually paid for those newsletters. So it was as pure and as clean as could be. But when people were unwilling to pay for that, Mark said, I'm going to keep going. I think the work I do is not only is it right, but it's important for people to know the difference is the people who have the newsletters are the ones that need to uh, belly up to the bar and pay for the service. And so for Motley Fool or Navalier or, or a, a lot of other people who are in the industry, the $3,000 check is, is it's just petty cash uh, for them because many of them are making millions on these newsletters. But you see, when you get tracked and you don't perform as well as you'd like to pretend that you can perform, then, well, maybe maybe if other newsletters don't pay the price, that nobody will know how we did and we can go out and advertise and tell people about one portfolio or two portfolios and, and, and forget the rest. But what I did, I went to Mark, I said, Mark, I know that you don't track the Motley Fool anymore, but you did track them before. What can you tell me about their performance? Well, there were all sorts of, of, of different portfolios. I mean, there are dozens of portfolios. I don't know how many portfolios the Motley Fool has now, but I do know this. I'm going to assume that when they say they did four times the S&P 500, I'm going to assume they're telling the truth. Now, they don't have to. I mean, they have a, a First Amendment uh, rights to, 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 to do what, say what they want. But, but, what we do know is that they had a bunch of newsletters uh, from 1997 that got closed later. 98, 99, closed later. Why closed? Well, one of these newsletters, I see, uh, uh, lost 16% a year for the three years it was in business. Well, how long do you want that hanging around? 
uh, on your record. So you get rid of it. Now, by the way, this is really common. Mutual funds do the same thing. When a mutual fund hasn't performed, they get rid of them. It's called survivorship bias because the ones that are left are going to look a lot better. The problem in the newsletter business is there's nobody tracking them to know who's really got overall the best performance. So as I go through all of these, I'll just give you a couple. Here's one uh, called the Rule Maker Portfolio. And as I see it here on the page, uh, Mark started tracking them in January of 99. It was closed in February of 03. And uh, during that period of time, uh, the, the S&P 500 didn't do too well. It made 3.1% a year, but the portfolio lost 16.2% a year. And here's one called the Real Money Portfolio. Opened in April of 09. I shouldn't say open, but that's when Mark started to track it. April 09, closed in August 13, had a 10.8% compound rate of return. Great. The problem is the S&P 500 uh, compounded at 20.7. Now, there are lots of them here where actually they did better than the S&P 500. But overall, you would say it doesn't look all that special, except they have had so many portfolios that, yes, some of them look like absolute uh, uh, superstars. But okay, you would have done well if for the last 20 years you followed their advice uh, uh, using this particular portfolio that they're talking about has, has outgrown uh, like four to one. But here's the interesting thing. For that same period, and you can go into HolbertRatings.com, and you'll be able to look at the 20-year scoreboard that I think is exactly the same time frame as we're talking about in those ads. And what do we see? Well, we see a lot of really fine newsletters, but very few of them. Remember about survivorship bias? For some reason, very few newsletters want to pay the $3,000 a year, uh, even though they take the risk, you see, of course, of, of having bad performance and Mark being able to tell people about it. So when I look here, if you wanted to know somebody who had a great performance, because the performance to, dub, to, to quadruple the money in 20 years is a 17% compound rate of return. So, if that's the case, then if I could just find other newsletters that got that, and here's one called Nate's Notes. And their average, they have a whole bunch, have had a, a, many portfolios over the years. If you look at all of the portfolios, the average of all of those portfolios was an 18.34% compound rate of return. Actually, 
I'm going to restate that because what it looks like to me is that he only had two portfolios, a model portfolio and an aggressive portfolio. And the aggressive portfolio made over 20% a year. That's much better than 17. I mean, w- once you get up to those levels, you remember remember that it takes, uh, you, you multiply whatever number into 72, and that's how many years uh, that uh, rate of return will take to double the portfolio. So you get everything on this piece of paper for Nate's notes, his portfolio, or the Cabot turnaround letter. Now, he didn't make 17%, but when you look across his newsletter, the, the averages, he did 12. If you look at the uh, Fidelity uh, Monitor newsletter average, it was 114 And by the way, those would probably be very similar to what those kinds of you would have gotten if you had had access to all of the newsletters at The Motley Fool. Now, uh, I've just unloaded so many numbers on you. Let me just condense it all into this recommendation. If you really want to find a newsletter... Find one that has been audited so you know what that return has been. And find a newsletter that has some portfolios that did better and some portfolios that did worse so that you're probably looking at more of a real-world situation. And what that may mean is you'll want to use several of these portfolios Maybe you'll want to put some money with Nate's notes. Maybe you'll want to put some money with buyback uh, letter. Maybe you'll want to use the Cabot letter. Uh, There are people who have gotten better than average returns. Here's one that compounded at 15%. That was a portfolio of average risk stocks at the investment reporter. But these have been audited by an outsider. And to me, that makes a difference. Headline, the 60-40 portfolio is in danger as Federal Reserve gears up for a rate hike cycle in coming months. I'm going to read just a couple paragraphs. The traditional portfolio, by the way, this is out of MarketWatch, The traditional portfolio mix of 60% stocks and 40% bonds, historically seen as the safest allocation for investors of moderate risk tolerance, is in danger. In quotes, is in danger. As the Federal Reserve gears up for interest rate hikes, uh, the first interest rate hike campaign since 2015, to 2018, according to J.P. Morgan Chase and company analysts. Treasuries, hammered by the prospect of rate hikes in coming months, are off their worst starts to a new year in the past three or four decades. Uh, The aggressive sell-off in bonds has pushed yields to two-year highs this week, which is exacting a toll on stocks. 
All three major stock indexes are down for 2022, uh, the, the NASDAQ being hit the most with a loss of 7%. Uh, this is, goes back to January 21. Now, here's the reason this got my attention. I have put a lot of people uh, who want to do it themselves uh, into 60-40 portfolios. And I can tell you that the danger in those portfolios is all mostly about the price of stocks going down, not about the price of, of, uh, of, of bonds going down, because bonds, even with the uh, uh, with the increase in interest rates, have had a small decline in their values. Now, some have had more because they use bonds that, I, that we don't recommend, like long-term treasuries can be very volatile. But short to intermediate, much less so. And by the way, what has made money this year are the tips. We have tips in the group of funds that we recommend we recommend in a fixed income part of a portfolio. But here's the thing that I think people should understand. The risk in a so-called moderate risk 60-40 is much bigger than most people understand, know about, I should say. It's not they don't understand it. They just haven't gone to dig it out. We've tried our best to help people dig it out. And it may be that people don't really know that we've done that. So I, I just want to put this on the table. We've done that. And the way we've done that is to give you the ability not only to see 60-40, but 50-50 and 40-60, etc. And that's our fine-tuning tables. And no, we haven't got the new ones out yet for this through last year, but they are through the end of 2020. And what do we know about a 60-40 portfolio? What is the built-in risk? And that risk may come from some completely unexpected reason that uh, was not predicted. But we know, because at the bottom of the page, we can see what the worst year was. The worst year for the S&P 500 and government short-term to intermediate and tips, the bonds, the worst year, I should say the worst 12 months, was a loss of 27.6%. That is not a small uh, decline. That is not a modest decline as far as I'm concerned, but that is the, the risk that's built in. Now, how alike are the S&P 500 and, let's say, Wellington? Wellington is one of the funds I often recommend at Vanguard for people who just want to kind of set it and forget it, aren't trying to maximize, but want to get a decent return. What do we know about the Wellington Fund? Well, over the last 15 years, uh, through the end of 2021, the compound rate of return was 8.4%. That, by the way, against its competition, the average balanced fund in their category compounded at 65 
So uh, almost a 2% difference from Wellington to the average. And when you look at the index of that particular uh, group of funds, the, the index was a 7%. So Wellington has done well, but Wellington comes with a lot of risk for people who will say, I can take moderate risk. And so what do we know? I can see when I go in and pull out the actual losses, for example, that Wellington has had looking back at the last 20 years, I'm sorry, looking back to 2008, because that was the, the last significant loss. In 2008, the Wellington Fund lost 21.1%. I'm sorry, that's what the S&P 500 lost. The Wellington lost 22.3, so it was about the same. If you looked at, uh, uh, let's see, 2018, the S&P 500 lost 2.1, Wellington lost 3.4. All I'm trying to say is if you look at the fine-tuning table for the S&P 500, it's table number three, we'll have a link to it in the notes. Okay, that would then give you an opportunity to get an idea of what that downside risk is. And I might add that if you looked at all of the years, losing years for the S&P 500 and bonds 60-40, the average loss was 6.2%. That is a modest loss, but the ride, this is important, the ride in the worst in the worst of times is going to be much greater. You also, if you wished, you could do the same thing. The 4060 portfolio is going to be similar. This is 40% S&P 500, 60% in bonds. The the that return is going to be similar to the Wellesley fund. Now, the reason it's not quite as tight is because Wellesley is more uh, Wellesley is more value oriented, whereas Wellington in the equity portion is more growth oriented. That, that's one of the reasons I like to use them together in a 50-50 split, because you get some value and some growth, a different different exposure. But for what it's worth, going back to uh, uh, the 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 year. Uh, 2018, the S&P 500 for the 4060 was down 1%. The Wellesley was down 26 And in 2008, uh, the 4060 S&P was down 12 And the Wellington was about down about 10 So you can use that table just as a, as a basic guide. And I want to take one question here, uh, a, a specific question, but I think a lot of you will be interested in this. Um, John, I think it was John who wrote this and said, they say that small cap growth is the black hole of investing. You get a high volatility and low reward. Should we still keep a small cap blend if the growth companies will continue to pull it down? 
Well, I, I, you know, there's, as you know, we have the worldwide and the U.S. combinations of big, small value growth. And then we have the portfolios that are all value, either worldwide or U.S. only. And what we find, and I've got some new studies coming out in the coming month, but I'll, a, a little spoiler alert here, for the portfolios that have gotten rid of the growth, and this would include, by the way, the large growth as well as the, the small growth, uh, there is about a one-eighth, I'm sorry, eight-tenths of one percent uh, additional return when you get rid of the growth. And so, yes, there are reasons to be all value. The reason that that is something I cannot recommend to everybody is because there are, as you all know, long periods of underperformance of value. That would include large value and small value. So if we overload you, or you overload yourself, because we're not your investment advisor, but if we encourage you to do that, we know that we're going to probably put you through a period that you're going to become very dissatisfied and at the risk of throwing it all in and just starting over with something that is more dependable. What I will be talking about in the coming month or two is a way for many to diversify amongst these different kinds of strategies so that when you go through those periods of uh, uh, disappointment that you'll have something in the portfolio that gives you a sense of uh, protection or participation, whichever way it may go. Which brings me to my last comment of the day. Uh, I, I thought I would just comment about my own portfolio because I have been telling you for years that mine is a combination of big and small and value and growth and U.S. and international and buy and hold and market timing. And approximately 50% in each of the other. In other words, about 50% international, 50% U.S. in the equity portion. About 50% a big and small, both U.S. international. And, and about 50% in market timing and about 50% in buy and hold. Now... Here's what has happened recently. Remembering, there is no magic to market timing. There is no magic to stock picking. There is no magic to asset class picking. Nobody has the key to how to do it right all the time. But I will tell you when I opened up and checked to see how our portfolios responded to the market break last Friday... I noticed that my all-value portfolio, buy and hold, was down about 1.6. The uh, buy and hold, that's 50-50 stocks and bonds, that first one is all equities, the 50-50 stocks and bonds was down about 
0.9. And the timing account, that happens to be 70% equities, 30% fixed income, that account was down one-tenth of 1% because it's sitting on quite a bit of cash and it also has a portion in bonds. And there were some things that did okay. It has REITs in the portfolio uh, and, and, and they did okay uh, on Friday. But the idea is to, to get people to use as much diversification as they're comfortable with. I have no problem recommending diversifying amongst these all these different asset classes for a buy and holder. I have tremendous problems in recommending adding the, the market timing and having you do it yourself. I just don't trust that, and I don't want to be responsible for you coming up short when we know that you can get a very similar return with buy and hold as timing when you use the right asset allocation. And I've mentioned this before, a 50-50 buy and hold has about the same standard deviation as a 70-30, 70 equity, 30 fixed income with timing. Enough of that. And... Never enough having an opportunity to talk with you. I am thrilled, uh, as always, to be here. I am having great fun these days working on these projects. I hope you'll give me some feedback on my aggressive recommendation uh, to read Patrick's book. Uh, and by the way, if I'm off base, I'll be glad to understand that, and you let me know why. In the meantime, I'm going to continue to find good resources, not only to support what I have uh, to, to offer, but what you can dig out yourself. So stay tuned as we continue to expose you to more of these great truth tellers. Understand that the only reason I'm recommending other people is because I think these are folks who might broaden your knowledge about investing and help you become the number one expert slash guru on investing for you and your family. That at the end of this education, or because of this education, you will understand the things about yourself, you will understand the things about the market that will in fact work for you and your family uh, for not only decades, but hopefully for generations. Thank you for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.